0: Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Africa and hear from the author. In this programme, that book is A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, 10,000 Miles Through Islamic Africa by Steve Kemper. It's the story of a man called Heinrich Barth, who took part in an expedition that led from Libya across the Sahara to Lake Chad and then through the Sahel to Timbuktu. It took him over five years, and Steve's book is a terrific account of an expedition that certainly fitted in with the great age of exploration. Here's the interview. Okay, now joining me on the line from, I believe, over in the United States is Steve Kemper. And he's the author of A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, 10,000 Miles Through Islamic Africa, which is quite an extraordinary book about a a rather extraordinary tale. Um, It really gives you an up-close view of what exploration was like in the 19th century. It's very easy to... uh, to think of the, the great names of, of, of explorers and to sort of say, right, well, they did this, then they did that, then they did this, uh, without really capturing what was involved in actually getting to those spots. And uh, in focusing on the life of a, a chap called Heinrich Barth, who was a, a German who joined an expedition in ni- in 1849 as the uh, scientific ex- uh, 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 expedition scientist? Really, um, Steve is really able to to tell us exactly what was involved in an expedition like this, and you know it was one of those stories as well, which uh, which which is just a, a delight in the telling as well. So, hello, Steve, how are you?
1: I'm very well, thank
0: you. Whereabouts are you exactly? Is it, are you in Connecticut?
1: I live in Connecticut at the moment, which is having Saharan temperatures, we're, we're way over 90 and very humid.
0: Goodness me, well I'm here in London and we'd gladly swap for anything, so uh, you know, I hope you enjoy that anyway over the next uh, few months. In the meantime, let's crack on with the book. I suppose the first thing to, to ask is, um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and in particular how you came across the man that's at the center of this book of yours?
1: Sure. Well, I'm, I've been a freelance journalist for more than thirty years, and during that time, I've have focused on people who are breathing, people alive. But uh, for some reason, this guy Heinrich Barth caught my attention, and it's the first time I've written a book of historical narrative. I've I heard of Barth um, in a book of dispatches from Africa by a famous Polish correspondent called resort Kapuscinski, whom you may know about. He wrote "Shot so he he came across a plaque in Timbuktu that said this is where Heinrich Barth, the famous German explorer, had stayed. And Kepacinski went on to say that Barth had spent five years exploring the Sahara, that he had been pursued by bandits and murderers, that he had uh, drank his own blood to survive, uh, and that he had brought back incredible amounts of information, which was not appreciated, and he died heartbroken. To me, that sounded like the bones of a great story, and that's how I got
0: interested. And, and what, tell us a bit more about your background before. Had you done any of this type of, um, you know, sort of looking at Africa or, or, or did the figures that you picked up on, whereabouts were they from?
1: Well, it, I had been, I've been to Africa a number of times, but it was always in, in pursuit of stories about living things, never, never about history. Uh, I've never written anything in which all of my sources were dead. So this was my first venture into this. What I, what I was pleased to find is that you still need the same ingredients, whether, the, whether your, your, your characters are dead or alive, and that's they have to be strong main characters, they have to have great adventures, they have to have passion, and there has to be some sort of uh, denouement. And I, that was all there, so uh, I wrote about
0: Barth. I was about to say your book is absolutely full of all of those things. So, um, I, 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 actually, can I just ask a question about the sources before we kick off? Uh, was it difficult to piece together this extraordinary story?
1: The story itself is is told in Barth's massive book. So, and he that was a, that was a treasure for me because he he he, he makes da- almost daily entries for five and a half years about. Where he is, what he's seeing, who he's talking to—that was fantastic for narrative. What was difficult to, to to weave in was the background, the historical context in Africa, in Europe. To to weave in the uh, the correspondence from the Foreign Office between the the consuls and the vice consuls in Africa and and the people in London in the Foreign Office, his correspondence in Britain and elsewhere. Um, the, Previous explorers, their experiences, things they had seen, and, and the contrast with Barth; those were the those were the the, uh, the narrative challenges for me.
0: Right. Well, I think that this is the point where we can really focus on Barth himself. Um, can you tell us a little bit about him? Uh, Kickoff, He he was born in 1821 in Hamburg. Uh, he studied sciences and he ended up on this expedition in 1849. What kind of man was he?
1: Well, uh, he's he's a he's an idealist he's completely devoted to science i think one of his uh, his brother-in-law who was probably his best friend called him a uh, almost a priest for science um, he was a difficult character because he, he his life revolved around knowledge and science and collecting information he was not a very sociable man he, he didn't get along well in parlors um, or in academic departments, for instance, he got along better in the expanses of Africa when he was in danger or being deprived. So, and, and he, he was a, a, a field a field scientist. He's a, an icon for those people.
0: You you during the book, it's fairly obvious that he was at his happiest when he was away from the main body of the expedition. But he also comes across as perhaps a little bit prim and dry, humoured, slightly over earnest. <laughs>
1: I think those, those that's all accurate and fair to say. Yes, he was. You don't read Barth for the jokes,
0: <laughs> but then you know you read it for the adventure, and there was certainly a, a, a great dollop of, of adventure. Um, let's just set the scene for this um, expedition of his. Um, obviously, this was this was as you described it. I believe in uh, towards the end of the book, it was the the cusp of. The Age of Exploration, as it became the age of of imperialism, and there was a real lust for opening up the continent of africa and and finding out what lay inside, but also all of the trade routes and trying to find out exactly you know what connected to what and uh, One of the things that you mentioned quite early on is that the um, uh, an astonishing amount of Uh, fatalities had hit expeditions that tried to get into the center of Africa via the Gambia over on the West Coast. Um, And then there was this character called James Richardson, who was the leader of this expedition, fantastic character himself, which uh, no doubt we can talk about as well. And his view was that uh, if you came south, basically from around Libya, where Libya is now, and worked your way south across the Sahara, although that was a bandit strew, and obviously you're crossing this enormous desert sea, that was the way to get into these areas of, uh, of Africa that really needed to be opened up.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. Richardson said um, too many people have died in the, the so-called white man's grave, which is the, the, the route through the Gambia so let's go through the desert and try it that way and so that's what they did
0: so the expedition what did it set out to do and what was the planning involved etc etc
1: well the the primary the primary goal of the expedition was to to scout commercial possibilities for the British Uh, Richardson wanted to find out what Africans wanted in trade goods from Britain and he wanted to see what they could offer in trade that might be sellable in in Britain, so that was the primary goal. In the back of Richardson's mind, the reason for that was if we can get these Africans to use legitimate trade, we can get them to stop the slave trade, and that was his primary motivation. He was an evangelical, uh, very religious man uh, who was thought slavery was the was the worst scourge in the world, and so he thought that the way to wean them off of that. Was honest commerce. Secondarily, was science, and they of course you needed in those days you couldn't have an expedition without having some scientific element to it. And for that, uh, Richardson consulted a friend of his uh, who was the Prussian ambassador to the Court of St James, and he consulted his friends in Germany because everyone knew that the best scientists in the world in those days were from Germany. And Alexander von Humboldt, who was a famous field biologist, a field scientist, and Carl Ritter, the famous geography geographer at the University of Berlin said, the only man who can do this is Heinrich Barth.
0: And at the time, Heinrich Barth was quite a young man.
1: Yes, he was in his late 20s at that point. He had just come back from a sojourn of a couple of years around the margins of the Mediterranean, North Africa, the Middle East, Turkey, and then through Greece and back home. So I uh, he was sort of he was a seasoned traveler in part of Africa, and he spoke arabic
0: all pretty important for what came next so um let let 's continue a little bit with the logistics of this. The whole idea was to set off from what is roughly uh, Tripoli modern-day uh, Libya and work your way south they were heading at one point for the Sudan and Lake Chad and then they were going to swing across the continent across what now might be called the Sahel um, and eventually end up in Timbuktu is that roughly where, where we're talking about
1: well you, you that's what happened but that's not what Richardson planned when okay. the, the plan yeah. was to to take a year and a half two years at most he said go down to Lake Chad and then come back through the Sahara. In fact, what happened is is what you said. They got to Lake Chad. By that point, two of the uh, two of the of the scientists were two of the people on the expedition were dead, the other two Europeans. Barth decided, I'm going to Timbuktu. He did that on his own.
0: Uh, no doubt we'll talk about Timbuktu later on because that's quite a, a fantastic story all of its uh, all of its own. So when they set off on this, um what kind of uh, logistical support did they need because one of the things that comes through throughout the book is just what an an enormous undertaking this is it's not just the uh, the danger and the time it's also the the need to negotiate with all of these little statelets on the way to to have enormous logistical caravans to be carrying all sorts of things to be able to to deal with the horrors that lay ahead uh, can you give us a a picture of what they set off with
1: well, they, they, had to, they had to amass a large number of trade goods in Tripoli because, as you said, you had to negotiate your way through these lands with the chieftains and the thieves and everyone else who needed to be appeased and honored and so on. Um, Richardson should have known better. He had already done a trip to Africa before and he'd written a two-volume book about it uh, in his investigation of the slave trade in the Upper Sahara. but he thought he could do this trip on the cheap and he caused a lot of heartburn and worry among not only Barth but the the British consul in in Tripoli and vice, vice consuls down in the Sahara because he wasn't really prepared to do what needed to be done to go the distance that he was hoping to go and it got them into massive trouble
0: can you explain a little bit of uh, c- can you explain a little bit about that please
1: sure um when they when they began to cross the Sahara and decided to go to the district of Ayr, which is a a mountainous district, uh, Barth compared it to Switzerland, uh, which is very unusual. No no Europeans had been there, and most Europeans had no idea that there were these mountain ranges in the desert. Um, they were beset by Tuareg. Well, you can call them whatever you want: brigands, thieves, fanatics. Some some said that no infidel Christians will come through our lands. Others just wanted the trade goods, so they were held up. They were they were picked apart, and they lost um, they lost about half of what they were carrying before they'd gotten even halfway to Lake Chad.
0: You have a, a fantastic quote about the Tuaregs. Uh, I've just dug it out here. Uh, an anthropologist once noted that for the Tuaregs, the idea that man is free and a brigand is so inseparable that the same verb, um, I, I, I'm not going to try and pronounce it, a, uh, means he is free and he pillages. I think that, that kind of sums up their attitude to, to, to life and especially any strangers coming through their territories.
1: Yes, that, that is a wonder. It's a wonderful quote. Um, I, the other thing about the, about the Tuaregs is that it was not considered stealing. If you had the nerve and the virility and the the, the, warrior, the warriorhood to take things, you deserve what you could get.
0: <laughs> I, I, I particularly liked some of the descriptions of the Tuaregs' attitude to life uh, where, it, where it crossed over with their attitude to women. It was quite an interesting part of the book.
1: Yeah, that that was fascinating. I mean, there there are so many things that that I learned doing this. I, you know, as I said, I'd been to Africa so, several times, and I've read about Africa, and I and I and I was really pretty ignorant um, about things like that. The Tuaregs, unlike almost every other uh, Islamic society, give women freedom—great um, freedom. They can—they don't cover their faces. The men cover their faces. The women. Uh, can own property, and if the, and if they get divorced, they take their property with them. the the, uh, the husbands join the wives' tribe. The wives do not leave to join the husbands' tribe. The wives eat with the men. The wives eat with the visitors. There's no. Um, it's a very um, easy relationship between the sexes. That's totally different from everything else, and it's partly why the the Tuaregs were were so fascinating to European visitors.
0: Throughout the whole of the book. Um, Bath and the other people on the expedition come through a succession of extraordinary statelets that all seem to uh, operate according to all sorts of different organizational principles and and so on their their politics their economics you know some of them use uh, carry shells as the the basis of their currency and some of them are, are organized along Islamic principles and there's emirs and there's everything I mean this 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 was just the most fantastic part of the book because it was every single place had its own character and every single place was a new element of the adventure
1: yeah that's 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 very perceptive of you to, to pick that up and that's exactly what Barth brought home he wanted people to understand that Africa is not just the dark continent that in fact it's got every imaginable shade and every possible metaphorical meaning of that phrase uh, he these places were independent they were organized they had their own cultures their own traditions and they were different from each other and no african would would say i'm an african they would say that i am from gwandu or i am from bornu or i am a kanuri you know i am a fulani uh, so that's that's the distinction that that Barth brought back which i think is so important and which uh, to tell you the truth i think most people in the world still don't understand
0: it- to be honest, it was a bit of an eye-raiser for me, uh, an eye-opener for me. Um, can you just tell us a couple of the anecdotes about exactly what it was like when Bath or his colleagues started off in a place uh, or came across a new place?
1: Well, uh, there were so many different—it just depended where they were. Often, if you came into a new place, you would, you would first have to see the, the emir or the sheikh or whoever was in charge and uh... you would be assigned a house and after you were assigned a place to stay then came the the ceremonial gifts first usually from from the uh... the african side they they would give them camel loads of rice or they would send over a bullock. and in return the uh... the infidel travelers were expected to shower the great ruler with expensive gifts and so that's how it started
0: and in some of these places, it's quite clear that that Bath was really scrabbling around to try and find things worthy of giving to the emirs, uh, and, and desperately worrying what it what it meant for his a- actual health uh, if he wasn't able to uh, to fulfill the emir's expectations.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Because uh, the, the Twirigs had taken so much of the stuff already, and what he had left was often of not high quality. And because Richardson hadn't bought enough stuff, and uh, so then often these these rulers would say well fine but you're you're not going to leave yet because you haven't given me enough stuff mm-hmm. and by the way here's another bullock so that means you're further into my debt <laughs> yeah.
0: but the uh, this was a crucial element of it because to actually negotiate these vast expanses full of bandits and what have you it, it was a very, so important to be able to 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 win the patronage in a sense of the rulers of these little states that sat on trade routes because that at least gave you some protection uh, in these vast expanses. I mean, you, you're talking about a couple of hundred miles very easily between these things. So if you weren't able to stock up with whatever was necessary and maybe have that, you know, that, that, that kind of guiding hand behind you, then you're even more easy prey to the bandits, let alone to those people who who sat on the trade routes.
1: Yes, that, that's exactly right. And and for Barth, it was a double dilemma because it was it was not only his survival it was his ability to make progress so that he could do the science that he wanted to do and with without without the goods you weren't moving and and that's why he was so upset and anxious about whether the british government would give him more funds because richardson had had spent everything before they almost before they got out of tripoli and they were out of money they couldn't buy any more goods they had been robbed of 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 much of what they had And so Barth is in this frantic position of, because he is now the director of the expedition, Richardson is dead, he has to get more money from the British so that he can continue. And meanwhile, of course, the the communications take six, seven, eight, nine months before um, Barth could hear anything back.
0: It's extraordinary, though, that he was able to send things out. I mean, for instance, towards the end of the book, you're you're talking about how he was trying to find out how he was going to move on from Timbuktu. So he sent uh, letters um, north up to to Morocco, out uh, to the west coast of Africa, and also to the south coast of West Africa. Uh, And these letters, as you say, it, it, it was a question of send them off and wait several months before they even arrived, let alone you know, pick up the fruits of whatever they were able to achieve.
1: Yeah, and uh, at least in that instance they knew where Barth was. A lot of times he was on the move, so you're trying to, uh, you're waiting for these these letters to, to get to Britain, to get approved, to get the goods together, and then to get them back, to find a caravan who's going in the general direction that your last letter came from, and then the caravan has to find you, and you have no doubt moved along. So, and yet, they almost always did find them. That—that's one of the extraordinary things, because the—the—the the, the grapevine in the desert was so was so accurate that the news got passed between caravans who who met each other. Have you seen the infidels? Well, yes, they were, you know, they were south of Bornu. You know, that that sort of thing happened all the time.
0: That's extraordinary. That it's—it's a bit like when we were talking about all the different statelets and and how they were all developed in their own ways. Uh, just the the efficiency of the trade routes is also another thing that that speaks of a, it's a different type of development but but my goodness me it's there
1: it yet certainly is and you know that that reminds me of the uh, the markets which is a good example of this Barth was was stunned to find European goods every place he went in Africa in Timbuktu in Lake Chad there would be swords from Germany there would be silks from Britain there would be glass from Venice. Uh, it, it, it's extraordinary that all of this material was making its way into territory that Europeans uh, had had barely set foot in, but the traders had gotten the goods there.
0: Uh, one anecdote you tell is is where he appears in a market, um, and he starts spotting goods that were stolen from him a, a, a month or two earlier. <laughs> yeah,
1: that, that's a, that's a very funny Barth, of course. Uh, Barth saw the humor in that. James Richardson did not see the humor in that because he ran into it as well.
0: Um, I just wanted to talk about some of the things that they uh, when they embarked from Tripoli or when they set off on this great journey. What type of things did they take with them? Um, You know, what type of trading goods was it advisable to take with you when you were uh, an explorer in the 19th century setting off south to Lake Chad?
1: Well, what was advisable to take and what they took are two different things unfortunately uh... richardson took a lot of cheap goods that he bought in north africa um, and those were not very acceptable to the rulers because they could get that stuff easily uh... bar said you should have brought british silverware british razors uh, british manufacturers that they're that are hard to get inside africa um, Richardson didn't do that Barth Barth made a request once he was the director, please send me a couple of cases of silverware watches, uh, music boxes, telescopes, um, looking glasses, uh, things like that um, th- those were the things that were valuable and then of course clothing um, manufactured clothing, not so much cotton cloth because the Africans were very good at at, at producing their own beautiful cotton cloth but um, other 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 sorts of clothing and he also did a good a good business with pins diff- pins of different sizes were very helpful trade goods because they were rare in Africa.
0: And needles.
1: Yes, needles, that's what I meant to say that, that that's exactly right.
0: Oh right, okay. And the um, uh, one other thing that struck me about this journey was that you describe um, the towns that sat either side of this massive expanse of desert almost being like ports which of course uh, you know it, it straight away makes you realize what the sahara must be like to to think of it as a great inland sea that's only just about navigable and when you hit the other side suddenly you you come across this this uh, extraordinary uh, trading zone very analogous to a port on the side of a sea
1: yeah that's i think that's exactly right i, I believe that sahel is an arabic word for coast and they they literally considered that that's the that which is the band that runs in between the desert and green Africa as the coastline by uh, you were either embarking into the sea of the desert or you were disembarking into the Sahel to go south to trade so it, it really is an inland sea made of sand
0: let's talk about what uh, James Richardson was obsessed with and that was the slave trade um, he uh, at one point you write that uh, Richardson was forced to abandon his view that if you could only convince the whites to give up slavery and then the uh, the coastal Arabs, which were the conduits uh, of of the slave trade from the interior of Africa, then everything would be fine and everyone would give up, give up Africa. But what he found on this uh, on this expedition was an, an extraordinary amount of uh, indigenous slavery. That uh, that he suddenly realized how difficult it would be to eradicate.
1: Yeah, that, that's a. I think that's a, a very important point, uh, and it's something I didn't understand very well until I did the research for this book. Most of the slavery in Africa was domestic slavery. It was it was slavery with within the black kingdoms, and they they raided the, the pagan tribes, who were not they were not Muslims. Therefore, they were legitimate. Slaves. You, you're not. You weren't supposed to make a slave out of a, a Muslim, but it was perfectly okay to do so with pagans. And that's that's who ran massive farms for for um, the powerful black kingdoms. That's who did the housework. That's who planted the crops. They they did everything. And uh, Richardson realized it's not just it's not just the Arabs, as you said. It's it's a, it's systemic and it's entrenched. The other thing to mention about it, though, is that it's very different from the kind of slavery that 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 I know about from here in the states, which is which was industrial and uh, traumatic and horrifying um, in the in the American South and in the and in the West Indies. In Africa, uh, is, Islam treated slaves very differently. Th- they could own property, they could uh, they could marry a free woman, and their children were born free. Uh, things like that were really surprising to me. So it was, it was a very different type of slavery.
0: There, there did seem to be an enormous number of categories of slave, and almost it, that depended on which, which, um, which little statelet you were, you were a slave in, I suppose. But some of the scenes. Much as you you draw a distinction between that and the the far more kind of industrial type of slavery, which was part of the transatlantic slave trade, um, there are some extraordinarily harrowing scenes that, that 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 you paint a picture of.
1: Yeah, you're you're talking you're talking about the uh, the Razia the so-called slave raids, and mm. um, they are horrifying. There's no two ways around, two ways about it. They, uh, you know, they they would they tended to kill the healthy males because healthy males were too much trouble to transport. And what they really wanted were the women for domestic duties and for duties in the harems and so on. So there is that scene in the book where Barth is watching 200 men, young men, with one leg chopped off and they're bleeding to death in front of him. Um, I, I can't even imagine that scene, how, what it must have been like. Barth responded by describing this new tribe which he had just been introduced to in this horrifying way he described their physiognomies what they had on what they wore in their ears uh it, it's a it's a it's chilling and horrifying
0: and there are also an enormous number of children taken
1: yes of course yeah and the children the children often were separated from their from their mothers from their parents that was not permitted once you were if a slave was born in while you owned a slave you couldn't separate the mother and the child you as as they did in the American South but they could separate them after the slave raids they they divided up the booty and the children may not stay with the mothers
0: can you tell us a little bit about something that well you come across it especially if you if you look at the Ottoman world and and so on but the the practice of using unix um, and actually how they came about to be eunuchs I found to be particularly horrifying
1: <laughs> yes I think I don't think any man can read that section and not uh, shrivel a bit um, the the Muslims it, it, it was not permitted to castrate slaves or anyone in Islam so what what the uh, the Muslims did is they sent these these people to Castration centers, some of which were run by Coptic monks, monks, or they bought eunuchs from pagan kingdoms, um, or received these eunuchs in tribute from pagan kingdoms where it was not illegal to castrate. So, um, yeah, there's, and the way they did it, of course, is horrifying. Everything comes lopped off. They use hot butter or hot oil to stanch the wound, and according to Barth, only one or two in ten survived this this horrifying operation. Um, on the other hand, there's the quote in there about uh, an explorer named Dixon Denham, a British explorer, who was horrified by the sight of a couple of freshly castrated eunuchs. And the chief eunuch of the court said, "What do you care about these people? They're they dogs. They're enemies. They should be dead. And now they'll spend their lives living in a palace in amidst luxury."
0: I'm not sure that would have convinced me, but uh, I can see the argument. But uh, this actually brings us to why eunuchs were so important. And and this was because of the development, for instance, of harems. And if you had a large harem, um, sometimes as many as 50, and you you do mention in the book that 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 then led to problems of being able to uh, satisfy all of the the young women in the harem. Uh, If you wanted anyone to look after this uh, or guards within it, it... Basically, made a lot of sense to have eunuchs.
1: Yes, because they were no, they were no sexual threat, so that's they're the perfect the perfect guard dog for a bunch of young, beautiful women. Uh, uh, so they, you know, imagine living among these temptations that you can never enjoy, and so that they were compensated with power and with money, but uh, a horrible a horrible existence. And of course, the the concubines often hated. The, the the eunuchs because they were tattletales. Their job was to control them. Um, and by the way, fifty would be uh, that would be a modest man. Uh, the 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 Hajj Bashir uh, had over four hundred, approximately. I think that's hilarious that he had to make an estimate of his number of wives.
0: <laughs> Extraordinary. Uh, <laughs> um, it's it's like a, a rich man trying to count his bank accounts, I suppose. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the science involved? Um, obviously, Barth was a scientist. That was the reason why he was involved in the expedition. You did get scientists involved in expeditions. That's how Darwin, of course, ended up going around the world on on the Beagle. Um, but can you tell us exactly what, what he was looking for, uh, what he was keen to find out, and, and, of course, what the successes were? Well,
1: I think uh... barth was a primarily a linguist and a historian and what today we would call an anthropologist so he was looking for links between cultures and places uh... he was looking for for the way that places influenced culture and and shaped cultures and he was looking for uh, linguistic clues uh... For, for links in that way as as well as as historical clues so he 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 wanted to find he wanted to study the people and and why they were the way they were and link that to uh where they were living
0: and um what exactly did he discover what what was it of note that he was particularly pleased with
1: well he 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 had geographical uh, some geographical discoveries he, he uh discovered the upper benue river which and and Proved that it did not flow into Lake Chad, that it was the, the major tributary of the Niger River. That was a major geographical puzzle uh, that was solved. Um, he also discovered a couple of kingdoms that no one had ever heard of in, in Europe: Guandu and Hamdalahi. Uh, he discovered that, that the, the language that is peculiar to a, to a town called Agadez, which is in the eastern part of, of the Sahel, was very similar to a language spoken only in Timbuktu, which was uh, far, far to the west. And it turned out that the historical uh, historical incidents linked these two things: that the Songhai Empire had been had conquered both way back in in the 14th or 15th century, and had left garrisons in these towns. And the garrison t- the the soldiers had mingled with the, the local populations. The languages had uh, A a hybrid language had been created, and they were similar to each other, even though they were very distantly separated. The way, and you mentioned you mentioned Darwin. It's a bit like Darwin's finches. Um, They're related, but um, how did they? uh, These islands are far separated. How did they? Why are they? uh, How are they related?
0: Uh, What's extraordinary uh, about this is is how he was picking up so much information, and then he was in this. Uh, you know, he he reached the Lake Chad area which is exactly what he was planning to do Uh, and then he decided to, in a sense, turn right, go west and keep on going. when you were writing the book and researching the book, was there, was there any kind of clue about what was it that drove this man to, instead of go back after risking his life for so long and, and suffering so much hardship, just to sort of say, right, well, I know, I'll prolong this whole thing by what was obviously going to going to be months, years, and yet he kept on going. What exactly was driving him? Uh,
1: he doesn't say uh, precisely, except that Matt, my speculation is that he felt that he had not accomplished enough yet in the expedition, although he certainly had. He'd he'd made all sorts of excursions from from Bornu on Lake Chad to, to kingdoms all around the lake. Um, but he wanted to go to Timbuktu because that was the place that had the allure back in the mid 19th century. Only one European was known to have reached there and survived: Rene Caillet, a Frenchman, mm-hmm. um, and it was irresistible to someone like Barth. He wanted to, he wanted to trace those cultures and then he wanted to see what Timbuktu was like. Uh, and he, you know, he, he, he just could not resist going to the next new place. It's, it's what made him a great scientist.
0: But you're talking about uh, how long, sorry, let's go back. How long had he already been on the road by the time he made this choice that he was going to push on to Timbuktu?
1: Well, I think he, I think this was about uh, two and a half years is, is when he decided so he was already beyond far beyond the maximum expectation that the uh, the expedition would take but he said he wanted to go he asked permission and the the uh, British government to its credit said yes we would like you to do that and we'll fund it
0: right and this brings us to a perfect chance to talk about Timbuktu it's a it's a mytholo- mythological place that even children will know the name but uh, it exercised a a bit of a hold upon the the imagination. As you said, one person, this French chap, had uh, had been known to get there. There was another guy who got there beforehand, a British guy who then died not long afterwards on the way back. The French guy won a prize. I think he, uh, he won the, the, what was it, the Legion d'honneur or something like that as well, but eventually died in poverty after his, his claims were questioned. So why was Timbuktu such a, a, an extraordinary place with such a hold on the imagination of, of, of uh, what we thought of as the West?
1: Well, uh, I, I, I think it goes back to, to Mansa Musa, who was a great empire, an emperor of, of Songhai, and he made a Hajj to to Mecca across Africa through Cairo and over to the Middle East, and he took with him camel loads of gold. His retainers were all were, were carried gold staffs. He uh, he dropped a lot of jack all over Africa, Cairo, the Middle East, and this this. Got back the news was it was it was spectacular news and it got back to Europe and it created this rumor of golden cities in the middle of the desert. So it was a it was a dream to find the golden city and and no doubt to to uh, to profit from it. In reality, Timbuktu was and is uh, a, a sandy desert mud town, and um, its real riches were in its its Islamic scholars and its libraries, and that remains true today.
0: Although as we speak, there is uh, news of, of Islamic extremis, extremists in Timbuktu destroying some of the great uh, monuments of this great age of, of Timbuktu.
1: Yes, that's, that's just horrifying. And it, it's not the first time. Timbuktu is used to it. It's It's been swept by conquerors throughout its history over centuries. And it's not the first time that, in fact, that books have been destroyed, that libraries have been broken up. Um, but it's, it's just terrible that it's happening again.
0: But to go back to, to Bath and this great age of exploration, it must have been a bit of a disappointment when you'd read all of these stories about you know, the, the El Dorado of the Sahara. No one quite knew exactly where it was. And when you actually got there, uh, to find that it was, as you say, a bit of a, a dusty outpost must have been quite a disappointment.
1: <laughs> well, yes, it was. Uh, for René of uh, this Frenchman we talked about, he had devoted his entire life to this dream of getting to Timbuktu. He wasn't a scientist, he was simply a dreamer. Uh, uh, he was inspired by the story of Robinson Crusoe and he learned languages, he impoverished himself, he, he, did, he went through horrible, horrible trials and tribulations in order to see Timbuktu and when he got there he could not believe that his dream was a pile of, of mud huts in the middle of the desert. So uh, it was disappointing. Although he did get honored for reaching there and surviving.
0: Well, his voice, uh, his um, his life story sounded almost as extraordinary as Heinrich Barth. Uh, as we said, you know, he was honored, and then everything was called into question, and he ended up dying at what was it, the age of thirty-nine or something?
1: Yeah, uh, the British, the British were part of that. Uh, they spread rumors that that perhaps, Caille had not really reached the city; that he had just. Somehow found the journals of the British explorer who had who had gotten there before him, but who had been murdered just outside the city's gates, and uh, they accused him. and And was no scientist, so he didn't bring back any useful information. All he did was go there and and get back. And the the British, you know, so they they cast doubt on it. It This infected the the French perception, and you know, and as governments tend to do when. When you're a hero and you're no longer in the news, uh, it's safe to cut off your pension. And that's what happened to him, unfortunately. So it was a mixture of things. And he died brokenhearted and broke.
0: Yeah, a very sorry end. Um, But to return to Heinrich Barth, five and a half years later, uh, five and a half years after setting off, uh, 10,000 miles of, of, you know, what? in anybody's book as quite quite extraordinary adventure, he ends up back in Britain. Um, He's pretty well received, to be honest, but um, the adulation stops far short of what we might have expected. And this is the big question that lies behind your book. Uh, this was the great age of exploration. We had uh, Speke and Livingstone and Stanley, uh, Burton, the rest of them, and we all know about them. And then there was this, yes, he wasn't necessarily the, the most all-consuming personality that you might ever have come across, but what he actually achieved, both as an explorer and a scientist, was pretty pretty extraordinary. So did you ever get any closer to working out why we haven't heard of him as much as we ought to have done?
1: Well, as you, as you said, uh, he did get honored by the British government. He did get honored by the Royal Geographical Society and by various societies in Europe. Um, and, but there are a lot of things that I think contributed to him not being famous. And no single thing accounts for it. But when you add them all together, they, they create a sort of fog that hides him um, from the public. One is that his book was too long and too boring the public to to digest, especially in comparison to David Livingston's work, which was exciting and dramatic, or or Richard Burton's books, which were also scholarly but were heavily dramatic and exciting as well. Barth wrote as a scientist, and it did not appeal to the public. He was also German, and I think that had something to do with his reception um, by the public. Um, one of the greatest expeditions in English in English exploration was led and and succeeded because of a German. I don't know if that seemed to stick in the craw of some people in the Royal Geographical Society, for instance. So uh, there was that aspect of it. Um, Barth was also very critical of the government in his book, um, saying that they didn't support me the way they should have. I spent way too much time deprived and so on. That's not appreciative. Uh, that's not appreciated rather, because the British government really did make extraordinary efforts to support Barth in Africa. It was just too difficult. Now, uh, on the then the, the, the style of, of was changing, uh, the interest of the public, because of because of Livingston and Burton and, and and those explorers, the public was more interested in the east and south of Africa and less interested in the Sahara. So Barth had sort of gone geographically out of style there was that as well um, and then i think partly is it's what he came back and said about what he had seen and it didn't fit in with the growing feeling um, that we need to take africa we need to civilize africa their only hope is european civilization
0: mm. that fits in with all of the different civilizations that he came across on the way and that they're, they're in some cases extraordinary level of development
1: yeah, uh, you know, I, it, it's hard to, to justify uh, taking over someone and pillaging them and imposing your ways on them if they have a civilization of their own. It's much harder to do that. You can't justify calling them undeveloped, uncivilized. And, you know, there, there were many parts of Africa that were that way, but certainly this, this part of Africa was not. It, it had long historic um, systems of government, commerce, organization, it was all there. Um, and yet, because Europeans and, and, and America had been there, we would have done the same thing, by the way. Uh, we did it with our Indians. We treated them all the same. You know, you treat them all the same. It's Africa and Africans, and there weren't distinctions made.
0: Well, Steve, it's a terrific story, and you've done it terrific justice with your book. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, But before we say goodbye to you, I'd like to just check up on what you would say your favorite place in Africa is. Have you had a good think?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I did think about it. And and I'm sorry I'm going to have to give you two answers. That's okay. For nature, it it would have to be Maasai Mara because uh, it's so gorgeous. uh, And you can see so many iconic African animals there. Uh, It's majestic. And the Maasai... uh, uh, it, it's iconic Africa to me, but on the other hand, for gritty Africa, um, I really did enjoy Timbuktu. It's a it's a special place, and because of the history, and because it's in the desert, and it's just picturesque and tough at the same time.
0: Fantastic. Well, I've never been to. Um... I've never been to Timbuktu, but I've got photographs from my own childhood playing with cars in the dust in the Masai Mara. So uh, uh, although I can't remember it that well myself, uh, I probably share your your view on on the first one. Uh, So thanks very much indeed, Steve. Are are you working on anything uh, exciting now or, or are you still dealing with this particular project?
1: Now I've got another book contract about another historical obscurity. This time he's American, but he also worked for the British again. Um, he was in the Boer War and mm. did a lot of work in, in Africa and in East Africa as well. He's, so it's another uh, historical adventure coming up. And by the way, thank you very much for your thorough reading of the book.
0: Uh, no, no, no. As I said, it's a terrific book. Really, really enjoy it. Um, and it's a book that you know, some of the ones that we do are, are slightly more academic and, and some of them are, are well, I've, I've, I've spoke to a woman called Erin Haney who'd done a fantastic book of collecting photographs from the 19th century and the 20th century uh, about Africa. And it, it's, this just sort of fits in with all the other ones that I've read. Uh, it was a real joy to read. So thanks very much indeed for writing it. fundamentally. Uh, But thanks very much indeed for speaking to us. It sounds as though your next projects uh, would be very well worth uh, um, hearing about as well. So when when you've uh, finished writing that, it's been published, get back in touch.
1: (laughs) I will. Thanks for the offer.
0: All the best. Enjoy the good weather.
1: Okay. Goodbye.
0: And that was Steve Kemper talking about his book, A Labyrinth of Kingdoms, 10,000 Miles Through Islamic Africa. If you're listening from the website, you can subscribe to this and other New Books podcasts on services like iTunes. And if you're on iTunes, then don't forget the website. This is Nicholas Walton from the New Books Network wishing you a good day from here in London.